As reports grow of China building uh, mock-ups of U.S. naval warships in the middle of the Gobi Desert, now these are, can you imagine building an entire copy of a, of a U.S. aircraft carrier? That's a thousand feet long, about 12 stories tall. That is no simple feat of, uh, of construction. Now, this is coupled with this. The Chinese military has sent aircraft to intercept a, a U.S. monitoring aircraft, which uh, the Taiwanese government calls a spy plane, nearing China's airspace on Monday morning on November 8th. Reportedly, it breached uh, Taiwan's air defense zone, or ADIZ, or ADIZ, as it's sometimes called, at 11.30 a.m. on Monday morning. Now, that would have been about 11.30 p.m. Sunday U.S. time. Now, the U.S. Air Force uh, aircraft was identified as an E-8C, which is uh, basically an electronics warfare version of a... Uh, of a uh, um, 737 um, uh, and similar to the US Navy's P-8 uh, uh, Poseidon aircraft that are used for anti-submarine warfare. Now the aircraft had not entered the uh, People's Republic of China's ADIZ uh, but it was near it enough that it prompted the People's Liberation Army Air Force or PLAAF. Remember China does not have a Navy nor an Air Force they just have a People's Liberation Army of 25 million people and they call different factions of it uh, their air force and their naval force, uh, although they are definitely different forces. So to go back to the topic, so 11.30 Monday, uh, they broadcast radio warnings to the U.S. Air Force aircraft, the P-8C, that it had entered or was nearing uh, People's Republic of China PRC airspace. Now, according to a Facebook page of the uh, Taiwanese Aircraft Spotter Group, the uh, Southwest Airspace of Taiwan, uh, the uh, PLAAF message stated that the Chinese Air Force is saying that you are approaching uh, China airspace and uh, affecting flight safety. Leave immediately or you will be intercepted. You cannot defeat China. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of uh, whatever that video game was. So just eight minutes later, the uh, Chinese military aircraft flew out of Hainan. That would be the rough area of uh, the southwest portion of uh, Chinese uh, PRC claimed airspace, probably near Woody Island or near Hainan. Uh, in the South China Sea. As you know, China claims the entire sea. They say, hey, China's in the name, so it must all be theirs. So can you imagine, if that is the logic, China probably believes every Chinatown across the world also is theirs. Just thinking, putting it out there, just so you know. So the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Air Force aircraft uh, um, then jumped into Taiwan's um, air defense identification zone, and uh, the uh, Republic of China's Air Force responded by sending combat aircraft and patrol planes uh, to, you know, check on the aircraft. What exactly was it doing there? You know, was it really a uh, E-8C or was it something else? It broadcast radio warnings that tracked both the Chinese and U.S. aircraft, and they were tracked with uh, land-based anti-aircraft missiles as well. Now, uh, they uh, um, immediately asked them to turn back or, you know, identify themselves and properly uh, coordinate with air traffic control. Now, the Taiwanese Ministry of National Defense, the Republic of China Ministry of National Defense, reported that the uh, People's Republic of China, or Communist China warplanes, uh, had also intruded into the south 
west corner of Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Again, this is an area north of Luzon in the Philippines, east of Batanes, and south of Taiwan. And uh, these were the uh, Shenyang J-11 fighter aircraft, which I believe is a copy of the uh, Russian um, um, Su-27, but I could be wrong. And there was also a uh, Shani KJ-500 aircraft, uh, which is an early warning and control aircraft or an AWACS-type aircraft, and it penetrated that sector of Taiwan's air defense zone on the same day. Now, this comes on the heels of about 20 Chinese aircraft entering Taiwan's airspace in 24 hours. And as identification has been revealed of Taiwan uh, being more clearly under threat from China, and China building mock-ups of the United States Navy's aircraft carriers, destroyers, and air defense cruisers in the middle of the desert while their fighter planes practice airstrikes on these vessels. Hey! Have a merry, happy holidays coming up. Looks like there could be war before the next one. So be careful and enjoy the one we have. Yes, indeed. Mm, but I do not believe the saying that China will not be defeated. In fact, if it attacks the United States or its allies, it will probably suffer the worst defeat that it's ever had. Look, at they couldn't even handle research work on a virus and it got out and did all this to the world. Hmm. What's the worst they could possibly do? Oh, no, I don't want to think about that one. All right. Well, we'll listen to this report further on the topic. I'm Mike of New York. Taiwan News. In its latest defense report released on Tuesday, November 9th, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense, MND, outlined the major military threats China poses to the democratic nation. On Tuesday, the MND released its annual ROC National Defense Report 2021, which for the first time was released in Chinese and English simultaneously. In its chapter on security threats, all 12 pages were almost entirely dedicated to the numerous threats China poses to Taiwan, including military, gray zone, and non-conventional security threats. In a section titled, PRC's military threats towards Taiwan, the report pointed out that China has never renounced the use of force against Taiwan and is using military exercises to prepare for possible actions or to threaten Taiwan. The paper then listed six major military capabilities the People's Liberation Army PLA, has enhanced in recent years that pose a threat. intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance ISR capabilities have been strengthened through the use of satellites, radar, spy and electronic intelligence ELINT boats, reconnaissance aircraft, and drones through multi-domains means via land, sea, air, and space. The PLA is enhancing its methods of gathering intelligence on Taiwanese military activities blockade capabilities both the People's Liberation Army Air Force PLAAF, and People's Liberation Army Navy plan are boosting their counter-air, sea control, and land strike abilities and accelerating the positioning of missiles for the People's Liberation Rocket Force PLARF. 
The report assessed that the PLA is already capable of imposing blockades on Taiwan's key harbors, airports, and outbound flight routes to cut off air and sea lines of communication and disrupt military supply lines. Missile strikes the paper stated that all the plus ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and air launched land attack missiles now have a range beyond Taiwan. These missiles, along with other naval and air force weaponry, would be aimed at Taiwan's political, economic, and military high-value targets (HVT) amphibious landings. According to the report, the PLA is bolstering its amphibious and airborne assault brigades, stepping up joint landings, training for Marines, and building air and sea strategic projection capacities. After gaining air, sea, and electromagnetic superiority, the PLA plans on dispatching amphibious vessels augmented by commandeered commercial container ships to carry out landing operations. Area denial a major part of the PLUS strategy to prevent intervention by foreign forces is to deploy a medium and long-range attack and anti-ship missiles and dispatch an aircraft carrier and PLAAF bombers to the Western Pacific. These actions are designed to intimidate countries and and prevent any military intervention by foreign forces in the first and second island chains. Strategic support The report states the PLA is constructing aerospace operational platforms via civil mill integration while it accelerates the launch of reconnaissance, navigation, and communication satellites to further extend its battlefield information advantage. It warned that the Baidu navigation satellite system and command and control data link systems will be used by the PLA to conduct information warfare, long-distance surveillance, far-seas operations, precision missile strikes, air defense, and anti-missile operations. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. For the last several months, actually, it's getting close to a year, we've had a lot of concern about what China is going to do. Its actions toward Hong Kong have been, as far as I'm concerned, evil and in violation of the deal in which Hong Kong's ownership was returned to mainland China. And then you've got concerns about the way that China has been sword rattling in the direction of Taiwan. And yeah, I've got a dog in the fight. I was born there. Uh, I have a soft spot for a very freedom-loving capitalist country like Taiwan that China insists is not even a country at all. It's just a little breakaway republic, and they've been making uh, making noises about how they'd like to take Taiwan back, and they've been flying their warcraft uh, airships over Taiwan. And then you've got concerns about what their attitude is toward the United States. So I decided we should talk to our China expert, Dr. Wei Feng Zhang, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dr. Zhang, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. So tell me this. Uh, let, let's. Which one of those do you want to start? Why don't we start with this? China's military building mock-ups in the shape of U.S. Navy aircraft carriers and other warships and using them as practice targets. What should we make of that? Well, first thing we need to know is that this is not the first time China has done uh, mock-ups like this. But what stands out is actually... The reason mock-ups are more advanced, it seems that they are trying to give more details to the targets, the mock targets, so they look more like the carrier that uh, they have in mind or the destroyers they have in mind. And and I, I think it's quite clear that Beijing, when they were doing this, uh, they really have the Taiwan Strait in mind or possible conflicts where the U.S. might be involved. And this is why I think... Uh, um, 
adding another layer of criticism to a policy the U.S. had for a long time, which is called a strategic ambiguity, that we are not committing to uh, whether we, we would defend Taiwan if China invades the island. And I think the recent developments like this one you, were, you are referring to, Lars, I think it makes it uh, ever more clear that uh, that policy is out of date and U.S. should make a stronger commitment to defend Taiwan. I would tend to agree with you. And I admit I have a bias in favor of Taiwan, but the bias isn't just because of my beginnings there. Uh, the bias is because when I look at Taiwan, I see a tremendously uh, advanced country that has managed to build itself up from not a third world country, but it, it wasn't a tremendously advanced country when I was born there in 59. But today they're one of the biggest uh, and most powerful electronics manufacturers in the world. And yet they've managed to, you know, supply their population of 24 million with a comfortable way to live. They're, they're big. Uh, they're, they're a big deal when it comes to desktop computers and laptop computers. They make an amazing number. Most of the computers we might be around today are probably made in Taiwan. And they have all of that, and they still manage to, to do agriculture as well on a little postage stamp of a country that's only about 13,000 square miles. So when China says, well, we're going to sword rattle toward them to see what the U.S. does, and the U.S. does basically nothing, what should we be doing at this point, and should it be more than just words? So what you said, Lars, is actually very important. Exactly for all these reasons that you, that you laid out, maintaining peace or sustaining peace, in the Taiwan Strait is of tremendous consequence to the rest of the world. And for a long time, the reasoning of the ambiguity that I refer to is actually for the reason that if you make it clear the U.S. would defend Taiwan, uh, policymakers in Washington was concerned, were concerned that it might provoke China. And another reasoning was that if the U.S. is shouldering all the defense, then the Taiwan military may not be on their toes. And so there's this, this uh, incentive effect there. But I think after a few decades now, it's quite clear that China's ambition to take over Taiwan is really independent of what the U.S. wants to do. And on the other hand, also, I think the Taiwan military capabilities has, uh, have uh, come a long way. So that really removes the two concerns that policymakers have about clarity. And so now that I think that it gives uh, ever more reason we, uh, the U.S. should make it clear that it would defend Taiwan uh, uh, when China invades Taiwan. And that's the only way, in my opinion, to sustain the peace and to allow all these uh, economic development that you refer to to continue on. Well, and some of this could be done without the U.S. spending any money. I mean, Taiwan is, is correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Zhang, but Taiwan is always asking to buy more weapon systems from the United States for its own self-defense. We could say yes more often to that. And all it would mean is a, a lot of mostly American companies would sell more hardware the, to the Taiwanese. And we could schedule some military exercises there the same way we do with South Korea on a pretty regular basis. Those two wouldn't take much because one is just saying yes to letting them buy more of our weapon systems and more advanced systems. And the second one is our entire military practices all the time. They run, uh, they run uh, drills and exercises and that sort of thing. Would it be any big deal for the United States say, let's schedule a few, including both aircraft and ships, out of Formosa? I think that's a good idea. And on the weapon sales, it's actually quite interesting. Um, if there are more details to it, because over the years, Taiwan has asked for both assault weapons, it seems, and defense weapons. And it seems that it's more productive uh, for Taiwan to have a strong defense system 
and the yeah. assault weapons would not do much uh, at the in the scenario where China China invades the island. So Washington has not been always clever in terms of choosing what to sell to Taiwan. Uh, Congress sometimes approved uh, selling assault weapons to Taiwan that that were basically useless, and that would be a waste of uh, money uh, on uh, both sides. I mean, not for the weapon uh, sellers for sure, but it's not doing any good in terms of enhancing Taiwan's defense capabilities. I mean, maybe maybe we could go to our friends in Israel and say, hey, that Iron Dome system you've got for a missile defense, uh, we, we'd like to help Taiwan buy some of those and and put a kind of a shot across the bow because, you know, they're, they're defensive systems exclusively. They're not offensive systems at all. But say to China, if you decide you want to do this, your aircraft and your missiles are going to be in a world of hurt if they come near Taiwan. We could do that, and that's not uh, that's not arming them up with offensive we- weapons. It's giving them defensive weapons. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it, actually, there's an, another similar example, which is South Korea uh, joining the uh, U.S. missile defense system. Um, that's widely known as THAAD, T H A R, A A R, right? Yeah, THAR so, or THAD, because you, you catch the missile on its boost phase before it gets you know to a speed where it's a lot harder to intercept it. It could actually weigh in favor of U.S. security as well as Taiwan security, couldn't it? Right. And, but there's also we also need to keep in mind the economic consequence, uh, because in the example of South Korea, uh, not to say what the Chinese government uh, did was right, but well, what did happen was that after uh, South Korea joined the missile defense system, China initiated economic sanctions on South Korea for quite a while. And so to make that decision, uh, we have to be aware of the cost that will come, uh, which seems inevitable if uh, that's well, the case uh, Taiwan do- is going for. Dr. Zhang, I may be talking outside my lane. I'm certainly talking to a guy who's a lot smarter on this. But if China says we're not going to buy as much from South Korea, the U.S. could say, great, we're going to buy more from South Korea and less from you, China. That would send a dual message, wouldn't it? It would make up for the loss of whatever they lose. And if China says, I don't know if China supplies that much to South Korea, but they probably buy from South Korea. If the U.S. says, we'll make up all those purchases, we'd like to get away from doing business with the chi anyway. Right. So I think the trade policies might have to uh, go with this kind of defense decision. And which which says that the uh, Washington policymakers need to be aware and be pre- prepared. So we cannot just go for the defense actions without thinking about uh, policy actions. Uh, I mean, trade policies that go with it. I think you made a good point, and I, I think that would be a good way to go. It's just that uh, oftentimes policymakers they don't think about economic and non-economic policymakers upon uh, policies in a sort of a integrated manner, so to speak. It's, it's kind of sad that they don't think about that because the rest of us in our daily lives, Dr. Zhang, you say if dad's going to change his job, that may change where we have to live. I mean, the American family does a pretty good job of trying to incorporate all. What will this change do to where Johnny and Jane go to school? What will this do to what kind of car we drive or where we live or things like that? If the Congress can't can't do the same thing and say, if we make this change, what effect is it going to have on the other things we do? Dr. Wei Feng Zhang is a senior research fellow at Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Coming up, Joe Biden's FBI is breaking down doors to try to get the president's daughter's stolen diary back. Can you believe that? During the term of Barack Obama, uh, there was a uh, head of the Defense Department, also CIA, Leon Panetta, who was in there, along with uh, 
guy by the name of Morrow, who does podcasts also now. And basically, they screwed up so badly in so many ways that America was stuck in Afghanistan for 20 years. And that was how they claim they did things right. Now, when you listen to them, they sound like a bunch of guys sitting in a room talking while each giving the other one a hand job. I mean, that's basically it. They're so impressed with themselves that they don't see all the failures and the cost and the loss of lives that it cost to so many people across Southeast Asia when foreign governments would just smile, listen to them, especially Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, and the Philippines. They would just look at them and say, these guys are on somebody's payroll, and it certainly isn't Uncle Sam's. And you can find that out when you listen to them when they discuss topics like China and how they're so focused on one particular foe rather than the one that is glaring at them. And their focus is elsewhere when it should be squarely on the People's Republic of China. Their focus is still on counterterrorism and other actors when their focus should be primarily on the PRC. One wonders what's in their wallet. Let's listen to who they perceive as the ultimate foe always and forever. You remember how it's now been known thanks to investigations uh, shown by the uh, special investigator, special prosecutor's office of the United States that uh, essentially 90% of all the information that came out of the so-called Russia probe that cost millions and millions of dollars to taxpayers, which was backed up by Morrell, which was backed up by Pineda, turned out to be all entirely false and turned out to be all now indictable information. Why isn't Panetta being indicted for this? Why isn't Morel being indicted for this? And yet they still continue to focus all their energy at one enemy. And that enemy in their mind is Russia. Russia, 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 Russia. I can almost hear Donald Trump talking that way. <laughs> uh, because I, I, I think, you know, there are kind of two or three things that happened um, over these last number of years that gave Putin a sense that we were not credible. Uh, and, you know, one was the fact that uh, President Trump kept undermining the NATO alliance uh, and kept, uh, I mean, he was, doing, he was doing Putin's work, to be frank, because his disruption of NATO was exactly what Putin was looking for. Anything. So, you know, this is Pineda, and of course he's talking about it from that point of view of this is a disruption. But actually, all Trump was doing was trying to get NATO to pay its fair share. And in fact, he was able to get them to do it. NATO paid more money into the system, and the alliance is actually stronger now. But Pineda refuses to see that. Because, you see, by the U.S. controlling the amounts of funds that were released, Pineda and his boys. They got all the kickbacks, the contracts, the consultancies, and all the other stuff involved in there. <laughs> You're listening to a fat cat talk, and listen to the fat cat talk some more. That disrupts NATO. Anything that weakens NATO uh, is to Putin's advantage. And so that was happening. Uh, secondly, the United States was not responding. You know, when we went into Crimea, when we went into Ukraine... Uh, when they, when uh, Russia went into Syria, uh, went into Libya, and even on the cyber stuff. I mean, when they were doing the cyber attacks against the United States, I mean, I was always asking myself, you know, where is the offensive side 
of our cyber capability. Well, actually, in uh, Bineta's mind, he's probably thinking about China and, you know, with all the things China was doing. In his time, the Chinese built entire islands in the South China Sea, and Pineda did nothing about it. Absolutely, totally nothing. He is basically a failure, along with Morel, when it comes to how they analyze the situation. Syria? The U.S. killed most of the terrorist leaders of ISIS. The U.S. was able to send in special forces units. They controlled and took care of the oil and protected much of those areas. Pineda refuses to understand that. You know, old rhinos, they think one way. That's why they're almost extinct. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you talked about uh, the intelligence assessment of Putin, you know, thug, bully. That's absolutely right. I think Bob Gates said, when you look in his eyes, you see KGB, KGB, KGB. <laughs> right, absolutely. Right, and, and, and part of that intelligence assessment of him is the only thing that matters to him is relative power. How much do I have? How much do you have? And so if you can show, right, give him the perception that you do have power and you're willing to use it, that changes the, the dynamic completely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think President Biden set up his Europe engagement uh, earlier this year exactly right, which is meet with democracies, meet with the European Union, meet with NATO, meet with all the sort of the entities that Russia fears, and then at the end sit down with Putin and say, we've got the world rallied behind our model of democratic capitalism, of free market economies, of the liberal international order, of human rights. We're watching you. And you know, and this is a guy who basically is uh, totally unaware that most of the United States is now unable to buy meat, unable to deal properly with much of uh, the gasoline and energy supply. You're listening to technocrats speak. They don't care about the average American. So Pineda and Morel, at their worst, doing their worst, talking their worst, on a podcast paid for by some IA company and big tech firm that wants to control the way the intelligence matters to people, but actually are doing a disservice to the intelligence community and the world. No, a lethal and a sublethal weapon directed at our people, and as you guys who had to lead organizations where you send people into harm's way, you know that nothing's more important than force protection. You know, in, in a way, Jeremy, you just made me think of something. Um, if Russia is behind um, the Havana Syndrome, they are a terrorist state. Yep. These are terrorist yeah. acts. And those are actual war. Yes, and, and act, acts of war, war. absolutely. Exactly. We're going to take another... So they're taking a break. We're going to take one, two, and tell you that you just heard the former director, two former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency, show their utter lack of intelligence. Havana Syndrome. Where did it start? Havana. Who's most likely behind it? The Cubans. Hey. <laughs> Who have the Cubans most been dealing with in the re most recent history? The North Koreans and the Chinese. So, who most likely is working with this entire Havana Syndrome thing? Probably not Putin. Because if Putin were doing it, it would be a London Syndrome. It would be a New York Syndrome. It would be a Europe Syndrome. It would be something that their people would control from the start to finish. Havana? Who goes to Havana? <laughs> so what exactly do they think about China? and its potential as a rival.
in the region. Well, let's listen to what Director Pineda says. He says he wants more and more and more involvement from ASEAN and regional countries, most of whom have seen his failure to do much when he was in office to prevent China establishing islands and expanding their reach into the South China Sea and basically turning it over and taking it and making it a Chinese lake. The U.S. could have easily just parked a carrier in the region and chased away all the Chinese construction vessels. They didn't. They faulted. Why? Because they took China's money. And when it comes to China, I think we have got to really build up our allies there. Now, you know, the, the administration has taken some steps to, you know, to have the quad, you know, have Australia and India uh, and uh, uh, South Korea and uh, Japan uh, work with us. Um, and that's important. I think, frankly, we ought to be doing more with the ASEAN countries to try to build up their security and work with them and build a stronger alliance with them. Uh, because I, I think the one thing that China and Russia, for that matter, Iran, the one thing they hate are alliances. Uh, and our strength is really the ability to pull these alliances yeah, together. They don't have alliances, right? They don't believe Yeah, that's they, right. People don't are, want to be friends with them. <laughs> they're autocracies. Uh, and so I think I think China, you know, I clearly represents a concern for the future. We know what they're doing technologically. We know the investments they're making. We know that they're trying to explore, again, the vacuum that they thought the United States left for them. They're going into marketplaces that we should have been in. Uh, they're going into uh, countries with, uh, with all of their financing, with their diplomacy, and kind of putting a lot of pressure on other countries to abide by China's interests. Uh, they are being very aggressive. Uh, and they're not, I think they're operating on the basis that uh, the United States may, but might very well not act. And again, I guess it comes back to that message that I thought we had to send Putin. I think it's the same message we have to send Xi, which is that uh, we will, we will in fact take action. They need to know that uh, and that there's a better way to try to resolve our differences through negotiation. So one part of the strategy, right, is the allies. The other part of the strategy has to be getting our own house in order, both economically, particularly from a technological perspective, and politically, right? Because if we don't, then it really doesn't matter, right? We lose. And so, you know, at the end of the day, this comes back to us here at home and the kind of mess we're in politically and what that means for getting things done that it move our economy and our society forward, right? Um, how do you think about that, Jeremy? Well, I think we are on the cusp of a new era of industrial strategy in the United States, meaning we need to have a regulatory approach, we need to have a foreign policy approach, and we need to have a domestic investment approach that matches the moment and the challenge that China presents. So if you look at what Xi Jinping has said publicly, He said we want to dominate artificial intelligence, quantum, 5G, autonomy, life sciences, space, and cyber. And these are areas where the United States and our allies have to stay aligned on our regulatory approach. You know, are we going to just break up big tech because we don't like the last thing Facebook did? Or we can actually keep our major technology companies which invest in those areas strong, capable, globally deployed to compete with the Huawei's and the Weibo's and the TikTok's? 
So you see the ultimate goal there immediately of this entire podcast that they created, and that's uh, Jeremy and Medell uh, talking about how big tech must be protected. So in their minds, keeping Google together, keeping Facebook together, keeping all these companies ginormous and unfortunately very much influenced by China, like Apple, practically controlled by the People's Republic of China in what they do and what they're allowed to do. And he doesn't mention that at all. So you can tell exactly where his buns are buttered. As we leave you today with a new version of FJB. Yes, that's right. It is Joe Biden. You know uh, what, what, what that all means. You know, the uh, F thing. And uh, Joe Biden has been a very popular version of songs lately. Chanted throughout the United States. Brought into sports stadiums. Hey, he is the most wanted to be effed president in U.S. history. With 38% popularity rating, the only person least popular than him is Kamala Harris, his vice president, with a 28% popularity rating. Hey, Joe, what do you know? You did it. You said you'd set records for popularity. You are the least popular president in American history. Jimmy Carter is so happy. Whew. How this world ends with dinosaurs, big storm clouds, nobody would have guessed. That newsman on the TV must have gone way back in time. Seems like all he wants is trouble, and all he sees is black and white. And we won't forget the 13 souls that never made it home, or the reason why they didn't. But I pray God bless them all. It seems like we forgot about what matters in this world. Like family, damn good friends. We'll stand the ground and we planted our roots in. Hold it down with the colors of freedom now. Can't you hear that sound of old glory? She's throwing her hands up. Let's go, Brandon. 